How did widows become villains in Bengali detective novels? Did the queens of Awadh break gender stereotypes? And how did Bankim Chatterjee's domestic novels question patriarchy? Hi, this is Shishti and you're listening to In Perspective, the Swaddles podcast series where academics reveal little-known facts about Indian history, society and culture. In this episode, we take you back to a conversation from March 2021, when we spoke to literature scholar Dr. Shampa Roy. So to start off with, we wanted to ask you about well, kind of the first name that comes to your mind when you think about the Bengali novel, which is Bankim Chatterjee. So we wanted to ask you about what kind of depictions of violence, uh, both within domestic spaces and marital relationships, uh, do we see in Bankim Chatterjee's domestic novels in the 1870s? Bankim would be uh, not the usual name, the conventional name that would spring to mind, perhaps when one is thinking of crime writings or crime literature, but. Uh, <clears throat> I thought of him because uh, I found that his dom- a because he is such an important writer in the late 19th century. He is one of the first to explore the no- novel form uh, in Bangla, uh, even though he started off uh, with an English novel. Um, his domestic, so-called domestic novels, which became very popular, uh, sort of examine both uh, illicit desire so-called illicit desire, and also uh, transgressive acts which are violent, uh, those committed by women as well, within domestic spaces. Uh, so his novels like you know, Rajmohan's Wife, which was written in English, which was the first novel really by an Indian to be written in English, <clears throat> didn't do too well, which is why he then switched to Bangla and stayed with Bangla. Bishabrikha, uh, that's Poison Tree, Krishnakanta's Will, these open up a whole uh, lot of, uh, you know, unresolved and tangled issues related to unjust social and gender hierarchies. Uh, Bunkin was, of course, a colonial bureaucrat. He had, um, he was, he was one of the first graduates of the of the newly established Calcutta University, um, and he also travelled extensively. Uh, within Bengal and as a, as a deputy magistrate in the 1960s, uh, sorry, 1860s. So um, he had a great, I mean, he, he had studied the context pretty closely. Uh, he went on to, of course, write a lot of historical romances. And that's what then I suppose he began to be known for, um, which, which is a pity because his domestic novels are just so powerful. Uh <laughs> And uh, his, you know, uh, Bishbrikha and Krishnakanta's will have contributed a great deal to his uh, iconic status as uh, as as a as a writer, uh, as a novelist. Uh, these novels are, in fact, full of, uh, you know, discord, debates, conflict, discontent. Uh, over official as well as uh, reform minded. Mm, uh, you know, Bhadralok's attempts to recast the upper caste uh, class Bengali's uh, gendered and familial experiences. You know, he engages with questions related to gender, marital relations, as also adulterous desire, which is which is very interesting for me uh, to see. And domesticity, 
familial uh, spaces he 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 narrates them in ways which were ki- kind of different from the way that they were ex- being explored in the english novels and uh, you know so gothic sensational domestic realist novels all kinds of novels traveled uh, to bengal the bengali bhadralok were reading them uh, you know and and bankim is writing these domestic realist novels but he explores conjugality he explores marital spaces he explores adulterous desire i feel somewhat differently for instance one of one major thing that i noticed was that um you know whereas the the idea of adulterous desire or non normative desire uh is looked at in the victorian novels with a great deal of prudish disapproval or horror and kind of push to the margins uh in bunkem's novels this kind of desire is confronted and allowed to create upheavals that kind of rip apart the the illusion of settled family life and this is what then end in uh, or, or lead to acts of criminal violence the the center of the action in these novels is grandiose zamindari households that are helmed by very wealthy uh, patriarchs and um the the again the interesting thing is that uh, you know crimes don't just follow from aberrational impulses in certain individuals which is how criminality might be seen that you know that there are these individual these individual villains uh, who 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 commit certain crimes rather the crimes are and and this is again what's what became interesting for me to explore that crimes are consequences of unarticulated and yet strongly felt desires and resentments that seem to pulsate beneath the seemingly smooth surface um of these uh, you know uh, upper caste joint familial aristocratic households so the, the, the uh, you know he will describe the daily rhythms of these um of these households and things being cooked and people talking to each other all of that but at the same time there are these intensely felt kind of emotions there's sexual jealousy there is anxiety there are frustrations um there is unhealthy obsessiveness uh there is malice there is vengefulness and so all of which kind of expose uh the power structures you know some people are able to exploit others some people are able to manipulate others um uh, women who are not able to but then even women are not all of course positioned similarly because they belong to different class positions so some are you know at a greater advantage than the others so there are power structures related to class caste gender within such households and he seems to explore with great finesse i feel the differential access to these power um structures to the oppressive structures of duties loyalties obligations you know even companionate marriages because it's not just that these are marriages that are terrible to begin with they seem to be companionate compatible marriages and even these are ultimately kind of threatened uh, um by the way in which the men behave the husbands behave so seemingly uh, fairly Mm, liberal husbands um also are exposed as being unable to you know contain their impulse to control or to use the their power um to explore other you know adulterous relationships in a way that 
seems extremely insensitive to their wives, uh, to their very dutiful and uh, uh, obliging wives. So, uh, the, uh, you know, and, and the thing is that what Bankim also shows is that certain kinds of reform efforts have happened, certain piecemeal and half-baked reform efforts related to female emancipation have happened. But these have only, it seems, complicated and sharpened the contradictions that are uh, embedded in the social practices. And uh, they've not really um, helped women uh, to to, to a great extent. And so so Bhadralok, you know, the the upper class, uh, middle class Bhadralok is willing to go so far uh, and women are left kind of you know, in a situation where they where they feel that their desires or certain kinds of expectations are about to be fulfilled, but then they find themselves in a situation where then where those expectations are not completely fulfilled. So, for instance, there is the Widow Remarriage Act of 1856, um, but at the same time. Uh, you know, it's not as if uh, upper caste, uh, that is Brahmin widows, are kind of encouraged to marry again or that their sexual agency is seen as something legitimate. It's still being frowned upon a great deal. So I think his 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 texts raise a lot of questions like, can the privileging of conjugality and, uh, uh, you know, companionate marriages, can this invariably lead to equal marital relationships or exploitation-free marital relationships. Uh, You know, um, have companionate marriages necessarily freed themselves of patriarchal uh, structures? Um, Do women really have a lot of agency uh, within within this context where a number of reforms are happening? How much of agency do they have? How much of sexual agency, for instance, are widows being allowed? Um, What are they, uh, you know, how are they treated? Uh, So uh, you see uh, also the problematic ideals of wifehood that still remain unchanged, even though conjugality is supposedly being reformed. So, uh, you know, so he does sort of uh, kind of bring in certain references to legal reforms that are women centric and that are happening within this context. And yet you have domestic and familial situations where extremely damaging kind of relationships, destructive relationships, dysfunctional relationships, women's desires and aspirations are still being frowned upon or punished. And and that then is leading to uh, extremely sort of violent kind of uh, kind of closures. It's really mostly in the conclusion that the text explodes in some sort of a violent crime. And sometimes you also feel feel that uh, the violence in the end is a bit of a disappointment because so much has been raised in the text, so many questions, so many difficult questions about conjugality, about uh, you know reform, about women's emancipation, about widows, uh, widows, and uh, what is being allowed or disallowed to them have been raised throughout the text, and then there are these violent closures. And some of these um, so-called, uh, you know, transgressive women are punished, but um, but those are the endings. And and throughout the text, you do get to see a number of these very strong women asking very very strong questions, uh, and uh, in a manner where the text is not 
uh, condemning them, is not you know, stereotyping them, is not uh, vilifying them. And um, so, and, and women of all kinds, you know, uh, uh, female domestics, uh, wives, widows, all kinds of uh, women who ask very crucial, very important, very interesting questions and point to the contradictions of patriarchy. Uh, even women in seemingly stable uh, relationships, etc., uh, or, or marriages. Uh, so I feel that mm, you know these novels are really, really uh, important, and it's 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 unfortunate that that he then become begins to be known as the writer of uh, you know Anand Martin, uh, all those historical romances, because there are these uh, wonderful domestic novels that he's written, which uh, which open up questions. Uh, very important questions about gendered relations. So um, I think definitely a lot of people would hopefully go back and revisit these novels. And it's interesting that it, like you said, portrays so many different kinds of women and put for, puts forth the contradictions um, in patriarchy through some of these portraits of elite households and family relations. Um, when you started off, you spoke about how Bankim Chatterjee would be an unconventional choice Um to analyze when you're thinking of like Bengali crime literature. Uh, the next, I think the person we want to talk about now is a super conventional choice in a sense, uh, Priyanath Mukhopadhyay, who wasn't only a crime writer, but also um, a police inspector in the Raj, right? So in what way do his immensely popular um, Daroga accounts from the late 19th century, how do they dismantle this cultural stereotype of Hindu femininity? Yeah, uh, so uh, Priyanath Mukhopadhyay is, as you said, he is very much your conventional and yet slightly unconventional sort of a, a crime writer in the sense that he wasn't writing detective fictions. Uh, he was writing uh, journals um, which were getting published. So he was writing about his, uh, these were true accounts of cases that he had solved. Uh, and these were serialized uh, in that, um, under that the title of Daruga Daftar. So he was, a, he was Daruga Priyanath Mukhopadhyay. Mm, he was, as you said, a police official uh, in, in a, a colonized Bengal. And his writings then can be pretty much seen as the first kind of manifestations of crime-centered writings. So cases that he had himself solved. And uh, he makes it quite clear in his prefaces that, you know, uh, these are what he calls Prakrita Ghatana, that is uh, Prakrita Ghatana, which is uh, you know, real accounts, authentic accounts of uh, cases. So uh, they were published for, for nearly more than a decade and were very popular. You know, at the time that he was writing these cases, at the time that these case, cases were being published, uh, there were a there were there were an overwhelming amount of popular texts uh, at the time because this is also the time that uh, the Bengal um, print industry is picking up, so a lot of material getting printed. Uh, so a number of popular texts of the time, <clears throat> not of course Bunkim, but uh, other writers. Um, focusing obsessively on this idea of uh, Hindu uh, womanhood. And of course, they mean upper caste uh, womanhood, the Hindu Ramoni, as they call it. Uh, so tracts, advice, manuals, plays, novels, other writings that appear in periodicals, newspapers, all of them focusing on the upper caste uh, Hindu home as the, the griha, uh, as um, 
you know, the sacrosanct space and the Grihini, the wife, uh, who doesn't really need any other education but uh, that of, uh, but the only thing that she needs is wifely devotion. The Hindu wife is really hailed as this uh, symbol of Jatiya Gorob, that is the pride of community, pride of the community. Um, you know, somebody who's devoted to the household, devoted to motherhood, devoted to wifehood. And, um, you know, and, and the interesting thing is, um, slightly contradictory thing is that even the reformist writers, even those who are questioning uh, conservative notions or ideas of um, Hindu womanhood, uh, who are questioning things like, say, um, polygamy, uh, the Kulin polygamy. I don't know if you know that there were these Kulin Brahmin men who married several uh, women because uh, Kulin, the Kulin caste was this very sort of restricted caste. Extremely small girls kind of getting married off to much older Kulin men becoming widows at a very early age. So there were, of course, reform writers who are questioning all this Kulin polygamy, dowry-driven marriages, the suffering of widows, etc. They're talking about female education reform. But even, you know, such writers <clears throat> talk about how ultimately Hindu women are extremely conscious of the, the uh, ideals of self-sacrifice and compliance and chastity, that they're all, uh, that Hindu women are very different from Western women, etc., etc., right? So there are all these extremely sort of uh, uh, reductive and restrictive stereotypes at play. Uh, now, Mukhopadhyay himself also subscribes to such notions of Hindu womanhood. But the thing is that he's, when he writes about these cases, when he gives us these true accounts of cases, what we see in these cases uh, uh, are, uh, you know, examples of uh, women who are behaving in ways that are very different from these. Uh, uh, ideals that are upheld about female behavior. So, uh, so there are women who will run away from home, women who have already run away from home and have been rescued, but who don't want to go back home. So that whole ideal of the Hindu griha as this wonderful space is exploded, is punctured. Uh, <laughs> Ordinary women, as as victims, also of course they are they uh, they they can't be inhabiting very uh, idealized grihas because they um, they have been brutally murdered or assaulted um, or oppressed in various ways. Um, and of course, as I said, besides the fact that there are these women who are victims, there are also those who are, um, you know, who commit criminal acts uh, or who have been killed because they have um, had extramarital relationships. There are also women who uh, who have defied norms of, of of whatever shastric ideals and who've sought out. Uh, sexual partners and who have also sought economic independence uh, of, of some kind, right? So there are enough of these cases and it's not as if Mukhopadhyay himself approves of such women or he's writing about them uh, with admiration or anything. He Very often he writes a, about such women with censure. But we as readers now, if we start reading against the grain, we can rescue these, uh, you know, these, these marvelous stories of women uh, who clearly were militating against uh, these uh, these dictums, these untenable dictums that were supposed to rule their lives, uh, their lives and their sexuality, their relationships. Uh, 
So, uh, for instance, it was while researching this area that I came across this word upapati, which is like a paramour. I didn't even know that such a thing existed. Uh, but clearly, <clears throat> you know, one of the women is uh, in a is, and she's a widowed girl, young girl. She is in a relationship with this with this man who is called her upapati. Um, you know, somebody who's like a pati, but not not one. What was another very interesting instance for me was where he rescues this girl who had eloped with her lover. And as it turns out, this lover is a feckless young man who had, you know, he who just wanted um, her, her money and her jewelry, etc. So he's abandoned her on the roadside. And uh, Mukhopadhyay rescues her. But the thing is, the interesting thing is that when he's kind of identified what household she's come from and he's very keen to return her to that house, she says, I don't want to go back uh, because uh, she sees that household, you know, she sees her family, she sees the household as a space where she will again return to drudgery. She will again return to a whole lot of questions, um, not so much support. There are all these moments when this idea of the Hindu griha as this wonderful space, as this uh, idealized or idyllic space is exploded, uh, questioned, completely ripped apart. Uh, you have women who have uh, who have killed for love, you know, who 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 can't stand with their husbands. Uh, again, these are non-consensual marriages. They've been forced to marry somebody because he's the right caste. And then subsequently, they have found a lover, and uh, you know, and and it's also very interesting the way in which uh, this girl who is now then being caught, um, she then uses that whole idea of the idealized Hindu Ramani who is devoted to her husband to confront the police officers. So when they question her, she says, "How can you even say that I have killed my husband? Because um, I'm sure you know that a Hindu Ramani can't do that, that a Hindu woman can't do that." So she even manipulates that whole language or that stereotype to her advantage. So there are all kinds of these very, very interesting uh, stories that uh, emerge, you know, voices. And again, what became interesting for me is that while you have these very idealized discourses, you don't really have actual voices, perhaps, of women speaking in a lot of the literature of the time or not speaking in a way where they're expressing their desires uh, in an in an unconventional way so here are these accounts where they do that it seems that we do have access to some voices uh, that are not quite um, you know uh, just upholding uh, uh, the traditional or ideal way of looking at femininity they're doing their own thing they're questioning you know, oppressive kind of uh, norms. And uh, so they're, you know, through their ejahars, as they're called, those statements that they have give, that they have to give to the police, all of those very, very interesting things come out about women's lives and the way they lived it. Uh, the kind of alliances they formed with other women, the friendships they formed, how they were able to understand other women in a way that many others didn't. So very interesting ways in which even though the narrator himself is not in favor of such um, uh, you know such behavior um, we can see how uh, these these women are able to uh, subvert uh, the system which expects certain kinds of things from them so those lost tales as it were those lost voices become very became very important and interesting for me
absolutely and this is fascinating because it's such a uh, it's such a interesting space to be able to find these voices mm. and you'd never think that in true crime in, in this genre is is where you'd be able to find these voices and these narratives but it makes so much sense and i think it's so interesting like you've pointed out to us i think twice that the narrator himself doesn't um, isn't in favor of this behavior you know but he sees these as true true accounts of the cases he solved so he puts That's them right. down as it yeah so i think he is just to add i mean he inhabits these two kind of spaces in the sense that he is a true crime writer so he's very devoted he's very particular about the fact that i have to be very faithful to what i um uh, you know what i have experienced and i must bring that to my readers and there is also this upper caste bhadra upper caste upper class uh, bhadra lok who is conscious of the, well upper caste bhadra lok maybe he's not that uh wealthy but uh who's who's uh, who is very sensitive to uh the beliefs and assumptions of his readers he himself subscribes to those so he's kind of inhabiting these two spaces and that becomes uh an advantage for readers like us because because of that he kind of ends up giving us the, all these interesting stories which otherwise would have been lost i mean we would not have known that's that's fascinating and i think along these lines of like you said new voices different kinds of ideas of femininities we see in a different genre in um early bangla detective fiction um depictions of what you call quote materially ambitious femininity uh could you tell us about what were the social factors that impacted these portrayals of female criminals and i don't know if you were thinking about this at the time but when actually we came i came across this uh when we were kind of looking at this trying to look at the origins of the gold digger trope in uh indian cinema and when do we see it and then i think when i read this there was like this um you know connection and and it felt like there was a similar depiction there or reasoning behind it as as we saw in the 90s and early 2000s uh bombay cinema films I, that's just a random observation i don't know what you think about that but but yeah if you could tell us about this uh yeah so these these so called bad women <laughs> you know who that uh, uh, that emerge in this uh, genre and um so these are writings that happen almost uh, in the wake of uh, priyanath mukhopadhyay's writings so he his writings become very popular and then you have what are known as the goenda fictions so these are actual detective novels you have an actual you know so fictionalized uh, goenda's detectives based on the homesian model more or less mm, but that that's not what we are so interested in as you said what you're interested in what we're interested in are the 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 figures of the villains uh, the, the the villainous women in these novels and what i found was that a number of them have these villainous figures you know they 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 kind of they become the beth noirs really of these of these goendas um now since female um assertion of an enjoyment of property related rights were seen as shockingly audacious kind of behavior so uh, in these novels wanting um property or being materially ambitious is immediately represented as something monstrous uh, something completely unnatural and also tied to sexual incontinence that there also you know so so as as we see as you said the stereotype of the vamp 
the femme fatale who is both sexually incontinent as also materially greedy and uh, what what makes these transgressions in these novels worse and uh, really grotesquely unnatural is that these a lot of these women are also widows so instead of leading lives of austerity and deprivation which is what a brahmanical widow was supposed to do not be interested in you know anything really related which was which was not life denying uh these are these women are widows uh who who want some a different kind of existence uh and and are of course who are villains in these uh, in these novels so as we know that um uh, in in bengal widowed women had been given certain kind of legal agency under the dayabhaga system uh material agency that is they could assert their right to own and claim shares in their husband's property um, also the hindu wills act which made it possible for women to inherit property which was bequeathed to them and one of the strongest reasons for opposing the widow remarriage act was the anxiety about the fate of the property that the widow could then alienate you know that she would marry again and she would then so so what she owned or what she had inherited from the husband uh from the dead husband could then become hers which which could get get alienated etc so these laws then opened up potentially conflicting uh, perspectives on women's legal status and questions of gender uh so on the one hand she was supposed to be the self denying widow but on the other hand there were also these laws that did allow her at least on paper certain kinds of rights um mm, so you know so, so she was in the, uh in in this kind of situation and again for me what was a revelation was that as i was going through the legal archives of uh, bengal of the 1890s i found so many instances of cases of widowed women who had approached the courts with property claims so they were actually fighting brothers in law or uh other you know uh, family members who had tried to sort of uh cheat them out of their uh, legal rights uh, of property uh, so they fought cases over prolonged time period with relatives of their dead husbands um for a for 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 a variety of reasons uh demanding maintenance from resentful relatives or or a right over their fathers or their husbands or their father-in-law's estate uh property so you know so it's not as if uh, widowed women uh, were, were completely silently accepting uh their fates and not asserting their material rights uh, uh, again the, the case that i have also mentioned in 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 my book which is uh, uh when such women uh fought uh, their cases one such case uh, which sort of draw, drew public attention was the case of this woman called keri kolitani and uh this is mid 1870s and it became the great unchastity case so much was made of the fact that these with the this widowed woman called keri kolitani was unchaste that she had a lover and somehow the fact that she was asking that she was demanding her right to her dead husband's whatever property became kind of subsumed under this larger interest in the fact that she was a babicharini that is she was unchaste and uh, so so even the judges who were who were kind of uh, deciding her case sort of focused a lot on that 
uh, you know, uh, how was what was her conduct like? What was her sexual conduct like uh, as as a widow? Uh, and even though she was a non-Brahmin uh, widow, but that didn't matter. So a, a lot of writings that came out against the fact that you know women like like her, like Kerry Kolitani, uh, would of course um, uh, put up this kind of a fight for property, whereas proper uh, widows uh, would not. So therefore, uh, you know, I saw that this this was a context where, um, you know, there's, there's this um, paranoia really about the possibility of uh, women kind of asserting material rights uh, and then this kind of leading to female autonomy um, uh, uh, and thence the loss of male control uh, over the body of the Hindu Bengali woman, because uh, not only were they going to be educated, uh, they were also going to have economic independence of some kind. What I found that uh, was that in these uh, Goinda writings, a what struck me was that, you know, uh, even though they... Uh, adopt the Holmesian model. Uh, in the Holmes narratives, there aren't that many um, uh, uh, female villains, or I think there's just one, whereas in, in these there are many uh, female villains. Uh, and so women don't just appear as passive, helpless victims of crimes in these Goenda fictions. Uh, they are perpetrators of crimes. Uh, they are accomplices to criminals. Hmm. Uh, and they are also unafraid to talk to the detective. They are. They also become assistants to detectives. So they play a whole lot of roles in these crime uh, fictions, in the Goenda fictions, but largely uh, villains, really. Uh, so they, they, they enter public spaces. They perform a whole lot of roles. Uh, so again, they problematize this, these images of idealized femininity, which we find find in uh, contemporary discourse, discursive context, you know, of, of women, uh, um, uh, upper caste women having to be silent and compliant and uh, non-transgressive, etc. So they're, they're not passive, helpless women. But the villains are those who challenge masculine identity of the Goindas through ambitions and actions that... Uh, see them, uh, you know, th that suggest that they view themselves as potentially independent owners of property, right? So they will talk about how they want to use uh, certain kinds of opportunities. Why should they not? This is their money. Uh, they have the right to fight for, uh, you know, whatever inheritance there is, etc. Uh, so, uh, you know, the crimes are that are committed become opportunities to reinforce the idea of women as heirs to or as owners of property or as even wanting to own independent wealth, right? Uh, and that this idea is unnatural, that women should not want to own independent wealth. They, they should be happy being dependent on male relatives. So the Goenda plots offer two kinds of possibilities for women as property owners. They either turn them into helpless victims of, female, uh, of criminal conspiracies, in which case the Goenda comes and rescues them. When they are conscious of their material rights, either as uh, owners of stridhan or as inheritors of property from male relatives, so when they're conscious of their rights, that they want to assert these rights in autonomous ways, they immediately become these greedy, 
dangerous, ruthless criminals. That's the only role in which, as as you said, they become gold diggers. You know, uh, and and not just gold diggers, but but worse than that. And uh, horrible kinds of words are then used for them: kalnagini, pishachini, and you know, several. I, I found that there were so many words that existed for bad women. Really. Uh, difficult to translate, uh, also. So, uh, you know, so they're witches, they're temptresses, they're horrible women, uh, and and uh, they they really mount a threat to the to to the hypermasculine Goenda and his uh, and his identity. Then, because he is more comfortable rescuing helpless heiresses uh, and and establishing male guardianship. Uh, so anyway, so the the solving of these cases of these mysteries of well of these cases really because it doesn't remain a mystery who the villain is. Um, the solving of these cases for this for the Goinda then becomes a way to reestablish the natural order of things. Uh, so so uh, uh, you know so so these women have to be put in their place. They have to be punished in certain ways, uh, and. Uh, and ultimately, then they are, uh, uh, you know, there are these very conservative kind of closures of the texts, uh, and these women are punished for their audacious aspirations. Uh, but this, again, despite the fact that there are those closures, uh, I think these very powerful images stay with readers of, you know, these women who are sassy, rebellious, self-assured. Uh, they're not just uh, educated, but they raise other questions of um, why it is not right for a woman to want to, uh, you know, own property or be materially ambitious. Because even, uh, you know, even when uh, reformists are talking about education for women, they're not really going into this whole question of um, women being uh, ambitious for roles within public spaces or uh, you know economic independence so this is something that opens that uh, pandora's box uh, I, I feel these 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 they, they, these are popular texts these are um you know non kind of canonized texts but they do raise these questions uh, not consciously perhaps but for us they end up raising these questions Absolutely. And I think these are such fascinating readings of, of these texts as well. So, I mean, it's amazing. And of course, we have a huge variety of words to describe <laughs> bad women. That's not surprising at all. <laughs> um, you know, another, like from this, uh, <laughs> a, a little later in the 20th century, I think um, you've written about the correspondence between um, Eleanor Rathbone, the British feminist and Indian feminist. What is the significance of this exchange and what were the questions that it raised about um, intersectionality, intersections and interactions between Indian and imperial feminisms? Yeah, so this was something that uh, that I did some time ago. Uh, why this fascinated me was because, uh, you know, two kinds of uh, feminists who were communicating with each other, who were corresponding with each other. I was uh, interested by the fact that here was a, a Western feminist, an English feminist, who was actually interested in listening to the voices of Indian feminists. Except that, of course, it didn't quite play out that way. Uh, so, uh, so just to give a little bit of background, 1920s, 1930s, English feminists like Eleanor uh, Rathbone uh, 
uh, were taking note of the fact that there was by that time an incipient kind of Indian feminist movement. They began to write to each other. So, uh, you know, Rathbone wrote to Indian feminists like Muthulakshmi Reddy, Radhabai Subarayan, Maya Ganguly, um, all very upper class, uh, middle class kind of upper class, really feminist, Indian feminists. But they they did communicate with each other. They formed alliances. Uh, but the question for us is to what extent was Rathbone really willing to distance herself from imperial and racial hierarchies uh, in acknowledging the and acknowledging the voices and agency of Indian women? You know, the, the assumption that women in India were a mute constituency, that they were silent, that they were passive, they didn't really uh, know what to say, but that Victorian feminists would step in and speak on their behalf. That was something that uh, that that English feminists always believed. So they were very concerned about their colonized sisters. They wrote about the degraded condition of Indian women, but not many bothered to actually find out or give importance to women's uh, you know, voices, if you can call it, call them that, the, the, the responses of Indian women themselves to, to, to patriarchal oppression. So in that sense, you know, Rathbone's writings occupy an interestingly different posi- position since she, unlike her predecess- predecessors, took cognizance of the nascent Indian uh, feminist movement. And she also went on to uh, interact on a regular basis with Indian uh, feminists, uh, especially on the franchise issue, the, the issue of the vote, uh, <laughs> the vote as it was given to uh, Indians at that time. Um, however, there is something interesting um, or problematic that emerges from a close scrutiny of her correspondence with Indian feminists. So uh, this is, you know, the fact that uh, she was a very, very um, important feminist. She was the president of NUSEC, National Union of Societies for uh, Equal Citizenship, which is the moderate wing of the suffragist movement in Britain. So she was the, Rathbone was the president of that. Uh, So she held a very important uh, position. You know, so she began to talk to, she began to write letters to, um, to, to Indian feminists, etc. As, as I said, uh, to to women who belong to the AIWC All India Women's Conference of the time. Now the problem is that uh, the, the Indian feminists, you know, they had certain positions on this whole idea of the universal adult uh, franchise or the, the 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 kind of vote that was being given to them. Uh, they were very firm about the fact that they would not accept uh, votes that would divide them. That is, the communalizing uh, measures of the imperial government was something that they were very resistant to. So, you know, to, to votes being given to certain sections. And I'm, so I'm not going to go into great details, but they had their position worked out that they would not take the vote um, unless it was given to them on their terms. And, you know, they they wanted a a more democratic vote. They wanted a non-communalized vote, which the British government was very uh, keen to do, of course. They they, they did give this this very divisive kind of a right to vote. Uh, So they had their position worked out. Now, what what I found as I was looking at the letters between Rathbone and these Indian bourgeois feminists was that, uh, which is which were being ex- exchanged in the 1930s, 
that Rathmon kind of keeps urging them to to give in to to accept whatever the imperial government was giving to them by means of of the vote so so even though she lords you know in her writings she lords the indian feminist movement and that there is that the indian women are doing so much etc but uh, when she starts speaking to them uh, she will keep saying she will keep urging them uh, encouraging them to accept what the imperial government is giving to them and muthulakshmi reddy and the others keep telling her that we can't and we won't because once we start accepting these things then there there is no going back uh, another thing that indian women were very indian feminists of the time were very resistant to was this idea of wives and widows uh vote that is you know they would get votes on the basis of being um wives or widows of certain indian uh, important indian men so and and also property uh, the property qualification so uh, you know only men uh, who own property of a certain kind are allowed the vote and then their wives and or widows so 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 these feminists also resisted that and so that qualification that wives and widows qualification was also something that they were deeply kind of resistant to and also very uncompromising and uh, unyielding about whereas um, what you see rathbone doing is constantly saying that uh, you know this is this is a very immature and impulsive way to react that you have to do see this as a gradualist thing things won't change overnight so you have to you know um, give in at at certain point and um, uh, you know you have to learn from more experienced sisters uh, that is people like her she she saw them also she also called them daughters of empire as daughters of the empire uh and and as daughters of the empire she says that they would have to depend on the guidance of the english women's movement uh english women uh, 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 you know of the people who've participated in the in in the feminist movement in england uh so it it was a kind of a patronizing attitude that she has uh that we know better and and this refusal to understand where their resistance is coming from and why it is coming in the way that it is uh she also says and this is something that i found quite shocking i remember she also says that what's wrong with the wives and widows uh, qualification because surely uh, wifehood is something that is wonderful uh, it it raises the status of women kind what is your opposition to that clause these are the things that i found quite problematic that um that there is this interest in women's uh, indian women's political agency there is you know she she wants to listen to their voices or she, at least she she says that she wants to um but she's also very keen to secure their approval for the franchise proposals that come from the imperial government she'll therefore say that you know Mm, there is one kind of feminism that is very emotional that is very impulsive that is very hasty and immature and there is another which is which is not so inflexible in its position but has greater practical wisdom so that's what you should go for uh, so she also in a way sort of dismisses you know their opposition as immature and too inflexible and impulsive and all of that for me the correspondence kind of uh, reveals how it she she does make this commendable effort 
to enter into some kind of a cross-cultural dialogue. But at the same time, you know, she, she doesn't quite let go of her racially superior identity or uh, her imperial politics. And uh, her claims to an universal understanding of women's problems, Rathbone that is, are severely compromised, I feel, by such correspondence where she clearly is uh, very conscious of her imperial citizenship. Uh, and, and she therefore does not understand, refuses to or fails to understand the Indian feminists' compulsions um, and, and uh, where their uh, resistance to these communal and non-democratic uh, uh, offers of vote are coming from. Wow, uh, really fascinating exchanges there. And I think a lot of people might not know about that as well. And very interesting in conversation, you know, between Indian and imperial feminisms and, and the kind of um, discourse, like kind of interaction on both sides. Uh, uh, I think in different spaces that you've looked at, there's always like something that you find, which like, <laughs> I think one or two phrases have to be there and then some interesting bites which really reveal um unexpected exchanges and voices um and i think so that brings us to the last question um as we've seen through the course of this interview there's a lot of um reading of different kinds of voices narratives which otherwise wouldn't be read like that's what you do which otherwise wouldn't be seen through that lens um and another one of those is um the narratives on avadi begums so could you tell us about Fanny Parks and a little about her for people who might not know? Could you tell us about her travel journals and how they subverted the stereotypical colonial understandings of royal women who resided in Zanana? The thing is that they do and they don't, but let, let, let's... Uh... <laughs> In the sense that, okay, let me begin with what are Zananas. So Zananas were part of this... Um, long established uh, you know part of this long established and popular tradition of western orientalist writings you know so writings that kind of orientalized exoticized certain parts of uh, asia the colonies uh, and zananas were then imagined as these spaces where you know beautiful indolent women languished um, under the despotic rules or rule of their oriental masters or husbands. So this this was a fairly popular kind of a stereotype. It evoked a lot of speculation and fantasizing amongst Western readers. Uh, and since they were largely out of bounds for European travelers, because European travelers obviously couldn't just uh, go blundering into Zena, if, you know, these female spaces, um therefore you know once um female travelers began to write about uh, their visits uh, about their travels they also began to include uh, visits to zananas um as part of their writings uh because that that was something that always intrigued western readers that what went on in these zananas etc Mm, so uh, Fanny Parks was the daughter of a colonial officer. She came to India also as the wife of a civil servant in the England, East India Company uh, <clears throat> and, and therefore was that Mem Sahib, uh, as, as they were called. Uh, Mem Sahibs of the time uh, produced a lot of travel writings um, number of them produced travel writings, that is, the travels within India, what they saw, what they, how they responded to it, uh, the flora, the fauna, the people, and um, 
you know, all, all kinds of things. Uh, and Fanny Parks's travel accounts became uh, acquired a certain kind of um, fame because they, you know, she was um, mm, she she's writing in the early years of the 19th century early to mid, I, I would say mid. And uh, she is very excited to, to travel within India. She, she doesn't have the squeamishness or the fears and anxieties that a lot of her contemporaries had. Uh, so she could, you know, go off on uh, all kinds of uh, trips. You know, it, it's sort of, uh, for, for a number of these memsahibs who who were otherwise like appendages to their husbands, I mean, they didn't have much of a role Mm, especially early on, um, this you know, traveling and then writing about their travel also became an exciting and empowering experience for them. Okay, uh, it gave gave them a certain kind of agency. Parks's journals make for fascinating reading because, as I said, uh, she is unlike the uh, a lot of the other women. Uh, she's very open to new experiences. She's very enthusiastic about traveling. Um, she's also a bit of an eccentric. Uh, she does seem to um, like being in India in a way that some other Mem Sahibs don't. So some of these Mem Sahibs also complain about the things that they have uh, you know, they have to face in India. Fanny Parks is not uh, like that. Uh, she she really takes a lot of pleasure in going around, wandering. Um, and, and in fact, she, she's happy to be free of her husband of domestic duties and just be off, uh, take off. And she's very outspoken, quite sympathetic also. And, and she loves the fact that this kind of traveling gives her that independence. Uh, to be on her own and experience things on her own and respond to things on, on her own, etc. So, uh, and and of course, she goes into Zenana's. Uh, now, of course, uh, the practice of keeping women within these restrictive spaces or not allowing women beyond these restri restrictive spaces, um, hampering their mobility, their sexuality, their labor was very uh, unjust to, to these women. Uh, and uh, a lot of the British women, whether they were mis missionary, British missionary women also went into zananas for, to, to educate and to, and they also talked about these zananas as these dark confining spaces, etc., which was true, perhaps. Mm. <laughs> but at the same time, there were certain zananas that that was sl slightly different. Uh, uh, so when Parks begins to travel, she is conscious of the fact that her Western readers would want to hear about these zananas, what goes on in these zananas, etc. How the how these women uh, you know live within these confined uh, quarters and. There are some Zananas that she describes where she is able to talk with a certain sense of outrage about how, uh, you know, women are, mm, women don't do much. They just, uh, they just languish uh, all day and their lives are full of this kind of emptiness. Uh, so she goes into the, the, the Zananas of uh, Mughal, Mughal rulers, etc. And she uh, finds women who are uh, like that, you know. But the problem with that stereotype of the languishing and um, 
drudgery filled or oppressed women of the zanana that stereotype gets a bit of a knock when she visits the royal zananas of avadh and uh, i think your question is asking me whether she subverts uh, the stereotype of the zanana i don't think she does or it it happens because she's giving us uh these accounts of royal women of avadh and she's um, she's very uncomfortable with with uh, what she finds there in the sense that uh, the royal zananas of avadh had housed for many decades very politically powerful women so they are not at all those uh, mm, uh you know uh, languishing powerless uh, um kind of uh, Mm, you know, women who just lead these extremely empty, boring lives, uh, um, you know, who have nothing to do, uh, so uh, horribly oppressed by their husbands and other male relatives. So um, that that's not what she, that that's not what Avdi Begums were like. That's not what Fanny Parks herself encountered them as. so they were women who for many decades had been uh, very politically powerful they had lives uh, and they led lives and they did things that challenged this you know this 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 strong and calcified stereotype of zenana women as languid erotic or whatever pitiably powerless creatures hmm. and when she is confronted with this evidence of begums who are not oppressed and neglected but are politically empowered active who are in fact administratively very skilled also she represents you know parks then represents their agency as somehow signifying improper female agency you know uh, as as uh, improper fem- feminine energies and that it's because there there are these women uh, you know who are so uh, unnatural in their behavior that they become symbols of that chaos within avadh which justifies or rationalizes british inf- interference that this becomes one because remember this is the time when the british are uh, east india company is becoming more and more interested in interfering in the administration of these places uh so this is pre 1857 or so uh, yeah so uh, they they'll also have that doctrine of lapse and all that you know, that uh, inherit that if you don't produce an heir they so uh, and but besides that also this this whole focus on avadh that that the that the east india company has which is um that it's it's a completely chaotic place that the rulers are extremely uh, 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 incapable they're ineffective ultimately you'll have wajid ali shah whom they see as this very effeminate and ineffectual but even before wajid ali shah you know ruler after ruler nawab after nawab they'll they'll have very many problems with so parks is writing also ties up the you know her representation of the begums then tie up with this discourse or, or feeds into this discourse that our there's also this administratively completely in a shambles kind of a place because you have these unnaturally powerful or strong women uh so she refuses to see that 
you know, in in Avad, a large number of royal women had always been politically active. That they have always played decisive. There was there's nothing unnatural about that. They'd always played decisive roles in various matters of the court. They were not the exotic, miserable creatures of others and others. Uh, they could not be therefore circumscribed into that that kind of a stereotype or orientalist image of Eastern women. Uh, they were, you know, as wives and mothers of nawabs, they were educated. They were well grounded in Shiite religious practices. They had enormous pra- property. They could somehow sometimes bail out their male relatives when they were in a financial fix. So uh, even though they followed strictures of parda, they were they lived in uh, zananas or whatever. They sometimes were power brokers. They could dis- decided who would inherit the throne or whatever. They influenced royal decisions. Um, they even uh, uh, sort of uh, argued with colonial officials, um, so crossed swords with colonial officials. So uh, and a lot of them. Or a number of them, I won't say a lot perhaps, but a number of them, like Badshah Begum, Hazrat Mehel, they were notch girls who had entered the, you know, the, the Nawab's harem and then had risen to become the Begum. Uh, so uh, despite their oppressive circumstances, they had achieved this through their ingenuity, you know, through their enterprise, through whatever uh, you know resources they had at their behest. Uh, so again, they could not be accommodated into this category of pitiable, helpless, uh, you know, Indian women who needed rescuing or languid uh, Zenana inhabitants, etc. So, uh, so in fact, you know, what is what is interesting is that it's once the East India Company steps in. And begins to take this kind of interest in, uh, you know, Nawabi Awad, and of course, uh, uh, and of course, in annexing it, uh, that the powers of the Begums and the Nawabs become more and more restricted, and that's when they perhaps have to lead far more limited lives. But otherwise, um, it's it's not as if the Begums were always. So uh, anyway, so when she encounters such Begums. Uh, you know, she insists on seeing them or representing them as power-seeking, as manipulative, as, um, you know, behaving in these absurd and ridiculous ways. Uh, and, um, you know, so, so refusing to be- believe or understand the, the active role that these royal women played in political decisions, had always played in political decisions and saw them therefore as aberrational that these are sort of these are not women who are very natural in that sense deviant kind of you know so so they they kind of are always out to uh, take advantage of the the weakness of the rulers and because they do that they exacerbate the weakness of avad and the avadi nawabs uh so so you know so so despite being a traveler herself despite being this very flamboyant kind of a person herself so when she when she steps into these courts and she steps into these zananas she somehow um she she has these rather conservative notions of feminine behavior and she disapproves 
uh, uh, of a lot of these Nana Begums, of these Avadhi Begums, which is uh, which which is unfortunate and which goes against the grain of a lot of her other writing, which is fairly sympathetic and interesting. Uh, but she somehow um, she's not able to accept uh, these politically empowered and active participants in uh, politics as as. Um, admirable women. Would she have been happier to see these purely ornamental kind of women in harems and zananas? But this definitely was not what met with her approval. And that's the note we ended our conversation with Dr. Roy on. We hope this gave you a lot to think about. It definitely inspired us about the ways in which reading novels and non-fiction pieces of writing against the green can tell us so much about a historical time period. We drop a new episode of this podcast series every Monday. So be sure to tune in. This podcast is brought to you by TS Studios, the production company that brings the Swaddle's creative point of view to original podcasts and films. 